Turn with me now to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And as he spoke... A certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you like graves which are not seen, and the men walk over them and are not aware of them. God add his his blessing to that reading of his word. Indeed, let us pray. Lord, we cry out to you that we may not be like these Pharisees, these who had the word of God and the lawyers and the scribes as well, those who studied it, those who made it their life to interpret and to apply this word of God, or so they thought, but they were deceived. They deceived themselves. But Lord, how we pray that you would speak to us in your word and that you'd write it on our hearts and that you'd grant us a true and right interpretation of these things and that it might be to our profit now and for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you recall Jesus' use of light. This is now where we are in this middle section of chapter 11, that he is speaking of the light, and we are trying to explain Jesus' point of this last time. And his concluding statement of the section was, If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part... The whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And last time we we spoke particularly of these people, what were they going to do with the light that was coming to them in Christ? Were they going to try to hide from it, or were they going to rejoice in it and embrace it? But I think now in this last statement, there is a transition to something, another application of this same principle. And the question is, why does he need to say that? Why does he need to say whole? In what way would it not be whole? Why does he need to say, then in that case there would be no dark parts? What, what does it mean? Will, 
there, will there be some that have dark parts in them? What sort of situation does he have in mind when he speaks those words? Well, sometimes Jesus gives us a parable or some other kind of illustration, and sometimes he gives us a live illustration in the form of something that happens. And this, I think, is in the providence of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what happens next. Just as he is talking about this very situation, a Pharisee appears to demonstrate the principle. As he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and sat down to eat. And Jesus is going to show us that this Pharisee and those like him did not meet the description of verse 36. You know what that description was. Is not one that was full of light everywhere, having no dark part anywhere, but rather one who had a false light in one part, but is actually filled with darkness everywhere else. You see, that's what a Pharisee's like. There's the appearance of light, a selective appropriation of the light. There's some light parts, at least on the, extra, on the outside. But actually, as you examine the Pharisee very close, there are dark, ugly spots everywhere. And that's what he's trying to tell us. And so we need to learn from a live demonstration of this principle at work. We need to learn from this Pharisee's mistakes because I don't think that we're so perfected yet that we are beyond the possibility of falling into any one of these mistakes. Because I think that as God's people, we know that we need to be obedient to the law of God. We know that we must be obedient to the law of God, but we, we know it's hard. We understand that the law is so very hard, isn't it? And therefore, sometimes we want something easier. If only we can be obedient to some portion of something then maybe we'll make a deal with God and we won't have to be so obedient to him and some other things that we find more difficult or disagreeable. And if you ever think like that, that means you're thinking like a Pharisee. And this sermon is for you. Well, these are mistakes. This is, by the way, I I sometimes recognize that the children have difficulty remembering even the title of my sermons. So I'm going to say it to you very loudly and clearly Mistakes Pharisees Make. That is the title of this sermon. Mistakes Pharisees Make. And there are four of them. First of all, traditions as if they were law. Second, externals as if they were everything. Thirdly, internals as if they were nothing. And fourth, man's approval as if it were God's. The title is Mistakes That Pharisees Make. The four points, traditions as if they were law, externals as if they were everything, internals as if they were nothing, and man's approval as if it were God's. So our first point, traditions as if they were law. That's the first and most obvious mistake that they make is to confuse traditions with the actual law of God. We see in verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. So just a brief explanation here in case you might think that this is about hygiene, because we often wash our hands. In fact, we tell 
our children to wash their hands before dinner. It has nothing to do with hygiene. That is not what we're speaking of. It has to do with the ceremonial law, or so the Pharisees thought, or so they acted as if it were the case. Now, the law did not in any place ever require that ordinary people do these kind of washings. It did require priests in the official uh, observation of their duties in the temple to do so. In fact, there were special vessels for that very purpose that they would wash before they carried out their duties as priests in the temple. But these things were not for ordinary people in the ordinary course of their lives. But the Pharisees, in their wonderful traditions, because they are so wonderful and so much super abundantly obedient to God's law, decided they would make it to apply. And so they began to think that everyone must have this ceremonial washing before eating. Now, this is, of course, without any warrant from God. They were treating this tradition as if it were law. And so notice how the Pharisee then is amazed when Jesus doesn't wash before the meal. Now that same word, we find it earlier in the chapter when the crowd was amazed at what? Jesus casting out a demon from someone in a miraculous way. They're amazed rightly to see such an obvious miracle. Now the same word applies, the same amazement applies to a Pharisee who can't believe that Jesus would not wash in such a way, would not carry out this tradition of the elders before he ate. What does it say when he is so amazed? What does it say, by the way, when someone is critical of the only perfect, utterly sinless man who ever lived? The son of the living God is before him and he finds fault with him. What does that say? What is going on in his heart? This is someone who has completely lost the ability to distinguish between what God has commanded and what man has invented. He was treating traditions as if they were the law of God. Indeed, higher than the law of God, as we'll soon to see, as he's so negligent of some other aspects that are very clearly in the law of God. He was treating this as if it were even more important. Well, Jesus deals with this problem at length in another passage very similar to this one, in Mark 7, verses 5 to 13. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. For in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. He goes on to give an example. Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, which means a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. You see, the Pharisees were treating their traditions as if they really were the commandments of men. And indeed, they, they went further. They had laid aside the commandment of God just so that they could keep their tradition. 
And I want you to see, by the way, that that is inevitable, that is necessary, that will always happen. Every time someone adds something, makes some new demand, some new requirement, it will inevitably happen that you have to lay some other requirement of God's law, some actual requirement, aside. Why? Because the law of God is so perfect. It's so integral. You can't add something to it. It's like a, a perfect diamond. It is, it is perfect. It is integral. It is, it is without flaw. And if you want to inject something into it, you've got to get rid of something that's already there. It's inevitable. And that was their first mistake then. To treat traditions as if they were the law of God. Well, their second mistake was... To imagine, to think of externals as if they were everything. To think of externals as if they were everything. Because in the case of washings, not only was it a mere tradition, not really the the law of God, it was a very external thing. And Jesus really makes a point of, of demonstrating this when he says, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean. And there's a, there's a distinction, there's a, a contrast established between this concern of the external, the outside, compared to the internal. Now the external, I would say, tends to be the easy part. And the external is certainly the part that other people see. And so, therefore, their eye turns to these kind of things. Now, that is not to say that there are no external aspects to the law of God. There certainly are external aspects to the law of God. And even in the course of Jesus' words to this man, we're reminded of that. He says, you, t- you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Do you see that? He didn't say you tithe of all of your possessions, even the most minor ones, and you should forget about that and only worry about these internal things. No, he says you should, you should do both. You should do this and not leave the other undone. There are absolutely external aspects to the law of God that must be observed. And they actually were, unlike the ceremonial washing, there were some things of the law of God that they were doing. The problem was, not that the problem wasn't that they observed external aspects of the law of God, but that they treated them as if they were everything. That was the problem. They thought as, as if when they had done these external things that they had actually fulfilled everything and that, that the, the tick had been added to the, the, the box. How could they make that mistake? How could they be so single-mindedly focused on these external aspects so as to completely ignore and pass by the weightier and more important aspects, the internal aspects of the law. Well, I think they were acting out of one of the default settings of the fallen human heart in that we look at the external appearance. Notice what the Lord says even of Samuel, who was a prophet. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so it is. We all, in our most basic natural inclination in in making an evaluation, will tend to focus on the externals. And they were acting merely out of this, this tendency. And they treated externals as if 
they were everything. That was their second mistake. The third mistake was to imagine that internal aspects were nothing. Internal aspects of the law as if they were nothing. It says in verse 39, Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. I wonder if one of the deacons could maybe open an external door or something like that. Is there anything that could be added? Thank you. And this is really the crux of what Jesus is saying here. By the way, in our concern for um, our great concern for internals, we do not neglect externals. They are important um, as well. I do not mean to say that. The point is putting our exclusive focus on one thing and not the other. So this is really the crux of what Jesus is saying. They're treating these, these internal aspects as if they were nothing, is that they care so much about these external things that there's no room left, there's no concern left for the inside. They had, it had displaced everything. As they had added these, these non-existent parts to the law of God, and as they threw all their emphasis and focus on everything external, then there's no part of their attention remaining for these internal parts, which actually in the mind of God, are are more important. He says, Woe to you. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, first of all, in this contrast of the the external, they're concerned about washing these these dishes, but their inward part is full of greed and wickedness. So as they're constantly looking at these dishes and these cups and they want to make sure that they're clean, they're not even noticing that in their own hearts is full of greed and wickedness. But anyways, it goes on in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. Now, imagine that. Somehow, although they, they loved to be thought of as the ones who really cared about obeying the law of God, they had passed by the love of God, which is the sum of the Ten Commandments, the sum of their duty before God. And this is something that they even knew. It's not something that Jesus was teaching them that was brand new. And they said, oh, well, you know, I'd never heard of that before. In another occasion, not so very long ago, in fact, the previous chapter in Luke chapter 10, they admit they know us. Luke 10, 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? Not what is written in the gospel or what I'm now going to tell you that you don't know anything about. What is written in the law that you're an expert of? How can you summarize that law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love The Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you know what Jesus said to him? You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Not that anyone could fulfill it completely. Of course, we know that's just the point. He's bringing him to conviction of his sin by pointing out that he has not done that. But as for the idea that this is the summary of the law of God, absolutely true. It's about love. But they were treating that as if it were nothing. And it was manifest in the way they dealt with people. So unloving. Indeed, as Jesus pointed out in the Mark passage, even to their own parents, they could be unloving 
in their alleged, supposed obedience to some external aspects of the law of God in other places. They treated, they spoke, they considered as if the internal aspects were nothing at all. That, were the, that was this third mistake. But moving quickly on to our fourth point, their fourth mistake was to say man's approval matters more than God's. They mistook man's approval as if it were God's. Because that's our larger question, you see. In, in these mistakes, the question that always comes to my mind is what, what leads someone down this road? It's not enough to identify the symptoms. I think that we also have to go a step back and say what would even lead someone down the road in the first place? What is setting up a situation that is so distorted that they would be able to make these three mistakes we've already talked about? Well, for part of the answer, we turn to John chapter 12. John 12, verse 42 It says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see? That fundamental mistake, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God? Now, you might say, is it necessarily a, 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 a dichotomy? Is it necessarily two things in opposition? Not, not always. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he grew up, he, he grew in favor with God and with man. And sometimes that is possible. But there will eventually be a conflict. The Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his sinless perfection, he could not keep that up forever. Eventually, he was not in favor with men. Eventually, men, in fact, cried out, crucify him. And so he had to make a choice, didn't he? Was he going to be in favor with God or with men? And we know what his decision was. He had to to favor, he had to value favor with God more than favor with men. But these Pharisees didn't. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And the larger issue is, beyond that, is just what Jesus said. As we're saying, as we're bringing this around to where we began, this is an illustration of the principle in Luke eleven thirty four: The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. That is the context of when he then says, If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part. But of course, these Pharisees did have dark parts. Because why? Because ultimately, in the final analysis, their light was darkness. They weren't regenerate, they weren't believers, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't truly love God, the gift, of course, that is given only through regeneration in the Holy Spirit. And that's why we saw all these dark parts. They look at, and Jesus looks in his perfect vision and sees someone who is like a rotten apple that maybe only has one little bit, maybe turned to the side, maybe an unscrupulous grocer and a whole pile of of apples has turned that one side of the apple to the front. And it's only that one part that's good. But the whole rest of it is utterly shot through with rottenness and worms. And the reason why is because they were bad apples. 
in the final analysis. The reason why they could treat man's approval as if it were God's, the reason why they could make such a mistake, is because they were still at enmity with God. They had not yet come to a living faith in the Lord. They followed the dictates of their own human hearts, for their own human reasons, and their own human ways. That's why man's approval was more important to them than God's. Now, as we apply these things, so many of them are obvious, and I think I just start our, by, by beginning with where we ended. If that's the fundamental mistake, then let's, let's begin right there. That, of course, very obviously, then, we have got to put God's approval above man's approval. We must seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to us. Our priority must be to have the favor of God. Now, not for our justification. When I say that, I do not mean at all that we strive to have favor with God in the sense of being accepted by Him and being justified by Him as if it could be done by works because we know that's not true. We know that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that is the only way in which we come into the presence of a holy God. That is the only way in which we are received into His family and adopted as children by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But having done so then, our priority for approval now becomes the Lord himself. And nothing can be allowed to compete with that. We are like children. And we're not going to be cast out because of our imperfect obedience. We do not earn, therefore, the love of Christ as we've been mentioning more than once. It was the love of God that sent Christ to the cross in the first place. There's nothing we can do to add to that. But we can live in the favor of God. We can seek his approval. Because there are some actions that he approves of us, of us in doing and others that he does not. And we have a word for that. We, we call it his law. He has shown us, oh man, what he wants from us. It can be summarized by loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Your neighbor as yourself. But we begin, don't we? with desiring the approval of God rather than men. Now, secondly, I would say don't add to the law of God. This is Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Don't do it. Now, there aren't many actual Pharisees left. There are some. Some would say, by the way, that there are those in Gateshead. The descendants, indeed, of the Pharisees are around, perhaps in the Jewish rabbis there of of the school in in Gateshead. But beyond that, there is, I think, a new kind of, uh, there's various ways in which we can imagine this happening of people adding to the law of God, the new morality that is in our land, for instance. We could start there, of of tolerance, for instance. Merely to say something is a sin, is a, a sin against tolerance, And I think the days are coming where this is going to loom larger and larger for the Christian church. Where there's echo-feminism. You know, that there are now echo-sins. And I don't mean to say that good stewardship is is wrong. We We should not be like the prodigal who wastes good things that God has given us. But it's no sin to use them. There's no biblical requirement for fair trade coffee or carbon offsetting that you sin against these things as if you're sinning against the law of God. 
But of course, we're not really tempted by those things, are we? That's them. What about us? What about us? Well, it's anything that we do not have a specific and direct word from God on or else drawn from good and necessary consequence in the law of God. I'll give you an example. Alcohol. If you think it's a bad idea, and it is a bad idea for some of you, don't drink it! Okay? If you know by experience that it causes you problems, then do what the Lord tells you to in Matthew 5.30. You know what it says? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, if you didn't know, I want to say this. There is nothing inherently wrong or evil with your right hand. God created your right hand and he created it for good. But if you, in your situation and your sinful patterns and your history, that has made and become an instrument of, of sin, then you must deal radically and completely with it to get rid of it out of your life. You cut it off. But then when you've done so, don't look at people who still have right hands and say that they're sinning. Okay? Now, some other examples. We, there are many examples of this principle. Schooling. We must stand before God, bringing up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is absolutely our requirement. It is our duty. But with regard to schooling, we do not have a direct an immediate and obvious answer that the church has universally held throughout all of time, we have a multiplicity of possibilities. You make the best decision that you know how for your own children, and you stand before God on that basis. But do not think that you're, something spe- you're, you're, you're special for making a particular choice, nor look down on those who decide differently. We all must stand or fall before our own master. So do not add to the law of God. We have enough of the law of God as it is. Thirdly, do not take away from the law of God. And what I mean to say is, again, for those who imagine themselves to be special in some respect to the law of God, they normally make a deal that if they throw themselves into their speciality, then they don't have to be so scrupulous about other things, and they take away from the law of God. Uh, One thing I just mentioned here is formalism. There is a growing formalism in some parts of the, the, the church of God where the idea of cultivating true holiness and of a burning love for God and for people, is that's for others. That's for those who aren't as reformed as us. That's for pietists, which is for them a dirty word, these dirty pietists. By the way, it's for you children as well. Right? It's not merely enough to obey externally the word of your parents, to be obedient to the things that they say, because you know what we want from you children as parents? Do you know? We actually want you to love us. We want your love and affection as well as your outward obedience. And God is not less than that as our Heavenly Father. That is what He desires of us. We dare not take away from the law of God that core of a burning desire for growing in love to God. We don't become formless. 
Now, how about us? Thankfully, I don't see a ton of formless among us. We, don't, we, we want to make sure that that never happens. But this brings us back to the specials. You remember the specials, the specialist in some aspect of legitimate concern that you don't have to worry about other things. And one of the most odious examples of that is certainly the, the difference between the, the love churches and the truth churches. I mentioned this in the Bible study, didn't I? The love churches where they're generous and warm-hearted and embracing and love people and they give and they help. But they let anybody say anything they want. And they're not very good at teaching the whole counsel of God. There aren't many books to be found on their shelves. And there's not much of the word of God to be found on their lips. And then there's the truth churches. Those who care a lot about those things, but seem to be a bit harsh, seem to be a bit unloving, don't give, don't help, don't embrace, and aren't hospitable. Brothers and sisters, there's probably no worse, no uglier of a, of a divide in the contemporary church between those two things. The, the very idea that it could exist, and unfortunately it does, is odious and hideous in the sight of God. And we dare not let ourselves go one iota down that road. What do we want to be known as? Do we want to be known as the most orthodox church in town or the most loving church in town? Brothers and sisters, I hope that the idea has never occurred to you because it shouldn't. We should be known as both. We should be the most orthodox and the most loving. Now, we will fail in both of those things. We will not be perfect. But we never allow ourselves one iota. We never look at someone else, some other situation and say, well, they are pretty good at loving. But, you know, they're not as orthodox as us, so I guess that's okay. No, we should be more loving because we have the truth, don't we? It inevitably brings itself, if you know the truth, inevitably it must bring you to greater obedience to that or you don't really have it. Actually, what you have is some kind of Phariseeism, if you can have truth and it not make you more beautiful, more holy, more like the God that you serve, because that is how he communicates himself to us. Speaking his truth to us is how he makes us more like him. And if that's not happening, there's, there's something else wrong. They're both out of it. Don't add to the law of God. Don't take away from the law of God. Fourthly, we must pursue, therefore, universal holiness. Now, the idea of pursuing holiness it's, is godly. It's true. Sometimes, again, there's an antinomian flavor in today's church. But Hebrews 12, 12 says, Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, because they do hang down sometimes. Make straight paths for your feet that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's the idea of necessary holiness. It doesn't, it's not causal in a sense of if you, you make yourself holy, then therefore on that basis God will receive you. It's not that. It is a necessary consequence of you being a Christian that you will certainly be holy. And, and you can not kid yourself. That those who have no, no element of holiness in them, those who have not at all been transformed by the word of God and his spirit, they will not be received on the final day. The word of God makes that very clear. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, when we say that holiness, what do we mean when we also add the word universal? What it means is that we can't be the specials. We can't be the Pharisees that pursue one element of holiness to the exclusion of something else. In fact, actually, I think that God would have us particularly pursue the things that we are obviously lacking in. It is a universal holiness that he calls us to. Nothing is like, it doesn't mean a total holiness. It doesn't mean that we can come to a point in this life in which we're utterly sinless. What it means is that there's no part of us that we, we neglect. That we do not just turn the one part of the apple that's good to the outside world. Not that we make a point of showing the other part either off. But rather we ourselves are aware of all those dark places And every time the word of God reaches us, we commit ourselves to new repentance and obedience in these things. And I'll just give you an example. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, that's not a spiritual gift. Some people are teachers. Some people are preachers. Some people are helpers. Some people are elders, for instance, or deacons or something like that. But all Christians have the fruit of the Spirit. Because this is the kind of fruit that comes. If you go to an apple tree in a certain time, you will find apples. And if you go to an orange tree in Florida, you will find oranges. And if you go to a Christian, you will find love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit that you'll find in any sincere Christian. And we must grow in these things. Fifthly and finally, very simply, we should tithe. You know what Jesus said about that? When these people were so concerned about that, he said, These things you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus puts his stamp of approval on the concept, the idea of tithing, of giving a tenth of our income. Some would say we ought to give more. I don't know, but I think that that principle of a tenth is certainly well established by the word of God. And I am so thankful for the giving of this congregation, so I don't speak in terms of a problem, but I know that things that are neglected, things that are left, are things that become problems. And so while Jesus reminds us that it was a good thing that they should have done, that we ourselves should likewise give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how we pray that we would not kid ourselves, but Lord, that we would think of ourselves as you think of ourselves. If we are not believers, for instance, If in fact the reality of our lack of of holiness, lack of light, the darkness that is in various places, our lack of receptivity even to the most important parts of the law of God, if we do not feel these things, and perhaps, Lord, you are reminding us that we need to repent and to believe, to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, even if we have, though, we recognize that our blindness remains and the old man continues to exert himself in any way that he can. We know that our default setting is to focus on on some typically external things. 
Or if not that, just certain aspects of your law that we, are, we find more palatable rather than others that we find more difficult. Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would enable us through the enablement of your Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word and Spirit, to pursue holiness. How we pray that the fruit of the Spirit might be found among us in great abundance and in great beauty and wholeness. And that, Lord, that we would not grow weary in well-doing, but carry on with these things. Particularly that we'd not add to your word of God some new traditions, even if we in our wisdom decide that some things we must say no to. And not to take away either from the word of God. How we pray that our desire would be to know the whole counsel of God and to obey the whole counsel of God. That we might have this wonderful gift of universal holiness, both individually and as a church. We pray this In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.